0: chapter 8. And this is a kind of a one-off sermon. This isn't part of any of our series, um, but just as we're thinking about the upcoming year, what sort of priorities should we have as we look toward 2024, which amazingly starts tomorrow. I don't know how that happened. Um, Well, as I was thinking about priorities of our church, um, in our church, as you know, we seek to be gospel-centered, right? That's, That's no surprise. Um, We do that alongside a lot of other churches within Sovereign Grace. Obviously, we're not the only people who are gospel-centered, but it is something we treasure. Um, But beyond ensuring that the gospel is central in what we preach and in what we believe, uh, it also must be central in how we behave and what we do. The actual actions need to be flavored by this gospel. One way of saying it is gospel doctrine is necessary. We must understand and believe all that God has said about his son Jesus and what He came to accomplish on the cross, but beyond that, we also need gospel culture. We need to we need to live out that gospel doctrine toward one another. If we're really those who have been gripped by the truth and the amazement of Christ dying for our sins, that's gonna that's gonna affect us. That gospel culture is gonna take shape when we when we love and when we live out this gospel. It's gonna look like specific ways. Well, in Sovereign Grace churches. Uh, we aim for our churches to embody this gospel, to, to have a culture of it in a handful of specific ways. And, and those, um, we, Sovereign Grace Churches has encapsulated some of those. It's not on a comprehensive list, but some of those virtues of those who are gripped by the gospel in what they're calling uh, our, our seven shaping virtues. Um, virtues uh, like humility, right? When, you, when you're aware of the gospel, you can't help but be humbled. Because God had to send his own son to die for you because of how wicked you are. That humbles you. There's no basis for pride anymore. Uh, it includes virtues like gratitude. If we've been forgiven an enormous debt, and we have for those who are in Christ, that causes us to be grateful to God. He's done um, amazing things for us. It causes us to have a, uh, an attitude of encouragement toward one another. We're no longer nitpicking, finding all the, all the things that bother us about others. No, rather we are we're aware of okay well you know there's a lot of things wrong with you but that's not how God sees you he sees you who for Christ you sees you for who Christ is and therefore I'm going to do the same I'm going to look at you know the, the spirits that work in you in this way there's an evidence of God's grace so encouragement humility gratitude these are things that live out the gospel of Christ in this culture in our, in our church and today we're going to focus on one of the shaving virtues and that is generosity uh, the gospel ought to make us generous people, and we'll see why today. We're going to specifically hone in today on financial generosity. There are various forms of generosity that that the Christian is called to. Uh, Financial financial generosity is one of those. Now, most of us like the idea of generosity in general, right? Of course, we should be generous with our time, um, with our skills, with our talents, um, as we listen to others, as we care for them, with our gifts that God has equipped us with, and those are all good. We ought to be doing that. But when we dip into the category of financial generosity, uh, we can become uneasy. (laughs) We can feel uh, a little, like, it's getting a little personal now. Uh, It might feel off limits. Like, well, that's that's not really something we should be talking about. When you hear this topic, when you, when you learn that that's what I'm going to preach on today as we're looking forward to 2024 and our priorities for the new year, what's your initial reaction? Um, financial generosity might feel like paying taxes. Uh, it, we, we know we should do it. Sure, it's got some value. We might not really want to. And to some, it might just feel like straight-up contor- uh, extortion, right? Um, or perhaps less negatively, okay, well, maybe don't think of it that negatively. We think of it more like, it's more like throwing money in a wishing well, right? Uh, it, it might be well-intentioned, right? In generosity, financial generosity, you're giving to the poor, whatever it is. It might be well-intentioned, but does it really accomplish anything? Um, you know, we might wish that it does something, but you know, perhaps the wiser among us would, would shake our heads and think, like, hey, you're just throwing your money away. What are, you, what are you doing? Well, God wants us to think differently than either of those perspectives. On financial generosity. And his goal for us is our joy. That's his goal in financial generosity, is that we enjoy him more. And I hope we're going to see that today. This is a topical sermon, so I'm going to reference a variety of texts along the way, okay? But our passage in 2 Corinthians will be kind of a, a launching point. Um, some quick context of this passage, just so you're aware, Paul is making arrangements to collect a financial gift has been pledged by the Corinthian churches uh, to the Jerusalem Christians who are in need. Okay, Jerusalem Christians in need, Corinthian Christians saying, we're going to help out, and Paul's going, okay, let's make good on that. He commends the example of the Macedonians, other Christians in another spot of the world, and uh, they're giving. He calls upon the Corinthians to fulfill their pledge, saying, all right, make good on your promise. Let's, let's do this. And then he coordinates Titus, who's the one he's sending to, um, to go collect their gift. Uh, with that in mind, we're going to read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter, we're we'll starting in chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. And at one point, we'll hop into verse 9. I'll let you know in. Um, as we read this, I want you to listen to the tone used by Paul to motivate not, not guilt driven giving, he motivates cheerful giving. Okay? Listen to the tone and realize that this is God's tone, this is God's very perspective and approach on financial generosity. Here's what God has to say about financial generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, let's read together. These are God's inspired words. Paul writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also." I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring to do it uh, may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. We're going to jump down to chapter 9, verse 6. Paul's continuing the same theme. Chapter 9, verse 6. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray for God's help. Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts. I pray that you would cause your word by your spirit to shape us and to change us and to resurrect us. Lord, help us put down our guards around the things that we think belong to us. I pray that you would give us a side of joy, Lord, of the, of the good that you intend to do as we seek to obey you. And so, Lord, we need you to act now, and we ask that you do so. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. What makes someone a cheerful giver. How on earth can anyone be like the Macedonians we read about who had such an abundance of joy that even in extreme poverty, they were able to be generous? What, what grips a person's heart uh, wh- wh- to, 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 to part with the money that, that they worked hard for for the sake of others? What causes them to do so? Not not out of a sense of compulsion or guilt, but willingly and, and cheerfully. What's the secret sauce, if you will, to joyful generosity? In a word, what makes someone a cheerful giver? Well, that's the question we're going to try to answer today. We're going to do so by looking at four overarching themes in this topic In Scripture, as we look over the whole theme, you could call that biblical theology, like tracing the larger picture. Um, And then we're going to finish at the end by taking some time to answer some very practical questions. Okay, well, now that we understand the big concepts, what does that look like practically? Okay, so here's our roadmap. We're going to look at these four themes. The basis for cheerful giving, the danger to cheerful giving, the sacrifice of cheerful giving, and the reward for cheerful giving. So let's jump right into the first theme. First, the basis for cheerful giving. Here's the basis for cheerful giving. It's that God owns everything and generously supplies all our needs. That's the basis. We see this in th- uh, this, this thread uh, uh, up here in chapter 9, uh, verse 10. Let's read that again. It says, he who supplies... Seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So, so God is the one who supplies everything we need in order to sow. Everything in the universe belongs to God. For one, He made it all, (laughs) it's kind of His. Genesis 1-1 reminds us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Guys, if it wasn't for God, there wouldn't be a heavens, and there wouldn't be an earth, and there wouldn't be this building, and there wouldn't be you, or anything else you see or touch or feel or experience. And because God created all, He rightfully owns it all. God reminds us in Psalm 50, He says, Every beast of the forest, even the little critters, we can't see. They hide in their little burrows. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. That's a lot of hills. God says, I own it all. It's all mine. Not one piece of that doesn't belong to me. Yeah, it might be on your property. It might be in your parcel of land. Guess what? It belongs to me. That includes our material possessions and our money. In Haggai 2, God reminds his people. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. So that's not off limits. Everything that exists is mine. And so everything we have, everything that we think we own, is really on loan from God. Amen. We're not really owners of anything. We are stewards of what God has given us. Two people who demonstrated that really well uh, to me while I was at the pastor's college in Kentucky um, were Gary and Betsy Ricucci. Uh, Gary was, at the time, the director of student care. I love that title. Um, director of student care at the pastor's college and and Betsy's his wife. Um, and they have, they have a really nice home. Um, uh, they, they live in a nice part of town. They have a beautiful kitchen. Um, you know, raised ceilings. I mean, it's decorated. It's great. They're financially well off. They, they, they are, by the world's standards, pro- well, you know, the world's standards. They're wealthy enough, right? They, they have a bit. They're not lacking. But they never saw their belongings as really belonging to them. Uh, they spoke that way but they also acted that way. They they saw themselves as mere stewards of what God had given to them for a time. They said, this is our our home from, for now from God. Like this is, this is what he's given us. It's not ours, it's his. And therefore, that shapes the way they saw what they were going to do with what they might call their home. <laughs> it was their home, it is their home, but it's God's home, and he has an agenda that, for which he wants to use that. And it showed, it showed in their actions. We were often... In Gary and Betsy's um, house. I mean, just enjoying a good fellowship, um, eating together, um, often something really tasty that I didn't know how to pronounce off of a charcuterie board. Um, they were generous with what God had given. They really lived like everything that they owned was really owned by God. That's a good example. That is the appropriate way to see everything that we have. Not as belonging to us ultimately, but rather ultimately belonging to the God who created it all. But more than just God owning everything, here's good news. God doesn't just own everything. He is generous with what he owns. James 1.17 tells us that every good gift, a gift is something given, with no payment expected in return, right? You know, Christmas, you didn't give someone, well, maybe you did. You didn't give a gift expecting something in return. <laughs> Hopefully it was, <laughs> it was actually given saying, I, I love you and I care about you, and this is for you. I don't, I don't want you to pay me for it. That undermines it, right? Gift, that's the idea. Every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? Above, coming down from whom? The Father of lights these are gifts freely given by God the Father. Every good and every perfect gift comes from Him. Ultimately, it all sources from Him. If you got a scholarship and the mail for your school, ultimately that came from God. He put on someone else's heart the generosity. He made them in His image and, and, and then decided to have them give to you. He, he's the source of all good things. We trace it all back to Him. And here's what's cool. God because he's not, he's not, he doesn't just own everything, like I mentioned. He, he's generous with what he has. He, he doesn't hoard what belongs to him. Rather, he gives generously to his creatures and, and to his children. He's not some cosmic miser who's standing there saying, time to collect my due. You owe me. No, he's a generous father, giving, not keeping track of things. He loves his children. He wants to provide for them. And we're created as those in his image. And he provides for us. As such, as this generous God, he does, in fact, provide for all of our needs. We see this theme. Jesus uh, remind us, uh, reminds us of his father's care in Matthew 6. He says this. Jesus really knows us well, too. <laughs> his, questions, his questions get down to our heart. He says, why are you anxious about clothing, in other words, the basic, the basic necessity. Why, why do you fret that you're going to pay that electricity bill? Why do you, why do you fret if you're going to have enough for rent next, next month? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. God clothes grass. He'll clothe you too. Generosity starts with God. He clothes us, he feeds us, he supplies all our needs. And so how do we now, supplied by everything that we need as God cares for us, How do we respond to a generous God? What do we do in light of His generosity? Well, we ourselves seek to become generous. As humans, we have the unique privilege of everything created by God to be those created in the image of God. And as such, we are designed to reflect God's nature. So here's God, generous, creating the universe, providing for all of our needs, and then he creates us as his little, his little reflection, his little image bearer, a little, a little mini-me, if you will, not quite, but <laughs> a, little, a little picture, a little picture of who God is. That's, that's an incredible privilege that that's who we are. And so if God is generous, then we are built to be generous as well. And we can be because he is toward us. If he didn't give toward us, we'd have nothing to give anyone else. But he has given to us. And so as his image bearers, we are also to be generous. And so we see this pattern Throughout Scripture, we see a pattern of God's people being generous with uh, the provision that God has given them. In the Old Testament, God's people were commanded to give a tithe, which just means a tenth uh, of the provision that they received from God back to the Lord, right? Leviticus 27 says, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. In other words, God commanded the people of Israel to trust Him with the first fruits of everything they received, both the seed and the fruit, everything that they made their living off of. This was they were agricultural. Also talks about oxen. One, you know, one in every ten that passed under the staff—that's mine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That one's mine. <laughs> they were supposed to trust God with everything that they made their living off of. Today's equivalent would be our paycheck. We don't. Most of us don't make our lives by sowing seed or raising cattle. Maybe some of us do. Most of us do something else. But our paycheck is the way that God often provides for our needs, right? And so God, you, you see this pattern of people being generous back toward God, saying, okay, I, I trust you with this. And this generosity toward the Lord is nothing shy of an act of worship. It's not just some transactional right or, or some, some payment due it's a part of our worship to God because it expresses faith in him God somehow even if it doesn't feel like enough I know you've provided so I'm going to give to you and I'm going to trust you I'm going to trust that you've given me what I need and therefore trust that you're going to continue to do so even as I even as I release these well-earned well-earned funds back to you it, it's trust and then it's it's also a, a form of gratitude, right? We think, Lord, thank you for what you've given me. I, I want to now give to others, give back to you, your church, whatever it is. A passage in Second Corinthians clarifies, back on the, on the theme, right, of, of worshiping God, um, that the generous financial gift that's going to be collected from the Corinthians is you service, Paul says, not only supplying the needs of the saints, in other words, it doesn't just meet some, some horizontal need. There were needy Christians in Jerusalem under uh, uh, dire straits in terms of uh, the, the difficult financial situation they were in it doesn't just supply their needs it does so it doesn't just do that but also it overflows in many thanksgivings to God what does generosity do it produces worship it is it, it produces thanksgivings to God both on the part of the giver and the receiver when you give there's joy in obedience God, when when you just hear that phrase, God loves a cheerful giver. When you give, you can know God loves that. He is pleased by that. He enjoys that. He's like, yeah, that's my kid who's acting like his dad, who gives generously to all without reproach, as James 1.5 says. And those who receive, there's many thanksgivings to God there. I remember a time Becca and I were the recipients of um, some anonymous um, um, donors who were incredibly generous. We had just had uh, our first kiddo, Josiah, and the way it worked out was um, he was born, discharged, fine. This was December 22nd, three years ago. And then he had to go back to the hospital for 10 days in the NICU because he had an infection, so no fun. Uh, But we we happened to span the new year, which means your out-of-pocket maximum got met for one year, and then it starts over again. So seven days in the queue on the, on the new here, so it's a huge financial burden. It's like okay, and, and like okay, we, we we have the savings for this. We'll, we'll just kind of ride it out. Uh, we don't know who it was. Um, so if it's you, you can you can smirk to yourself or whatever. Um, I think it was I think it was it was numerous people gave generously. We're talking thousands of dollars that people said we heard about your need we didn't even ask. we weren't even asking for help people heard about the need and said we want to help you that's incredible that's jaw dropping that's like is this a joke where's the camera generosity produces many thanksgivings to God, both on their part, because I'm sure they're like, that was a lot of fun. We got to give. and we, They don't even know who we are. We're storing up our treasure in heaven, man. God's going to honor us in that day. And when I get to find out who it is, I'm going to praise them as well. But on the side of the recipient as well, it, what that did on my end is it made me go, okay, God, you really do own everything. You really are going to provide for every need of mine. Here we were, Getting fretful about golly, we got a baby and we got the rent and we've got the huh, oh, it's getting a little stressful. And God goes, I can just, I can just drop thousands of dollars in your lap in cash whenever I want. What? Many thanksgivings to God. Cheerful giving is worship. It honors God for his generosity and it entrusts him with what he's given us. So God owns everything, he generously provides for all of our needs, and if we don't Believe this, guys. If we don't believe this, we're not going to be cheerful givers. That's impossible. You can't be a cheerful giver if you don't think, not, not, not the true kind of cheerful giver that God likes to see, the, the spirit-filled cheerful giver, uh, not some worldly version of that, but rather the true thing. You can't be that unless you believe, really, that God owns everything and that he generously supplies all of your needs. Um, and that brings us to our second theme which is the danger to cheerful giving. The danger to cheerful giving is this. Loving money will bar us from loving God. That's the danger. Paul touches on this in our passage. Look at chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 again. He says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When Paul is speaking here of sowing, he's talking about financial, uh, giving financially for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. So what tempts someone to sow sparingly? Just, just enough seed to say, I, I sowed. I threw something on that soil. Maybe it will grow. Or, or maybe what causes someone to perhaps still give, and maybe even quite a bit. Maybe they, didn't, maybe they sowed bountifully, but they still did so reluctantly uh, or, or under compulsion. Well, the, these temptations come from greed and from a lack of faith in God. Well, what is greed? Greed is a, it's a wrongful understanding of money. That's what it is. Um, instead of seeing our money, as we were talking about earlier, as belonging to God, right? That's a right biblical understanding of our money. Greed interprets it as belonging to us. It's really ours. That's mine. That's off limits from others. And if I want to give it, I can, but really it's mine. I get decide to do with what I want to do with my money. Um, and so we become protective of it, right? That's, that's natural human nature. Uh, we no longer see ourselves as mere stewards of all that God's given us, simply midstream in his generosity. He's giving to us in part that we might give to others, right? Rather, instead we see ourselves rather as as the rightful owners and the sole owners of everything that we have, which in actuality, God has given us all of it. So this greed, it threatens more though than just the discipline of generosity. It does threaten that. If you're greedy, you're not going to be giving generously. But it, in fact, it threatens our relationship with God. Um, Jesus had plenty to say about this when he was on earth. He was not shy of speaking on this topic. In the parable of the seed, uh, where the good news is... is um, uh, sorry, the, the parable of the seed uh, on, on, on soil. So the, the good news is the seed, it's cast upon all sorts of different soil, seeing where is it going to bear fruit, where is the gospel of Jesus Christ going to take heart and bear fruit. Well, some of that good news falls upon uh, a soil that doesn't produce fruit. And here's why. Jesus says, this soil, for, for this in this scenario, it says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus warns us that even if we think we can serve both God and money simultaneously, thinking we can, we can love God, right? I can, love, I can love and worship Jesus and, and simultaneously have a, a pretty tight grip on my finances over here. He says, you're wrong. You can't do both. He says, no servant can serve two masters. If you've ever worked at a workplace where it had that structure, you know that to be true. <laughs> no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In a word, as Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. Those two, the love of God and the love of money, those two loves, those two passions, those two desires, those two devotions, those two worships are incompatible. Can't do them at the same time. So there's a danger to greed. But greed isn't always blatantly obvious. Uh, we might think it looks like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Uh He's greedy, right? His cold-hearted unwillingness to spend one more dime than he has to on even the most basic necessities for his his workplace uh, employees, right? Uh, You don't need any more coal. You can freeze. You'll be fine. That's greed, right? Well, it might look like that. It could look like that. I think more often, though, greed is more subtle. Paul highlights two, two, two forms of subtle greed in our passage. First, it looks like sowing sparingly. That is a form of greed. Sure, the Corinthians were regenerated by God and called as saints. They knew about the financial need of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, but some were tempted to sow sparingly. Still give, but just enough to quiet their consciences, maybe. But sowing sparingly leads to reaping sparingly. And our sin of greed, even subtle greed will cause us to miss out on the blessings and the bounty that God loves to give to generous givers. The other way that greed shows itself is in reluctance. Paul commands the Corinthians, he, has, he includes this phrase. He didn't have to, but he knows the Corinthians. He says, he commands them to give not reluctantly or under compulsion. He includes that phrase. God wants that to be in here. Why? Because it's possible to give, even to give a lot, and yet to do so with a heart that's bitter about it. We might say, well, not loud, of course, but in our hearts, fine, God, I know I'm supposed to give to your church and your mission. I know I'm supposed to be generous, but this really feels unfair and sort of like extortion. And so I'll give to soothe my conscience. I might even give some benchmark to, 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 to hit some goal, but it's really not my preference. It's not a joy. It's not fun Uh, I'd rather not do it. I think it's easy for us to fall into one of these categories, to either give little or nothing, or to give but to be salty about it. Friends, this is not what God has in mind. He doesn't want a people who sow sparingly. He doesn't want a people who give reluctantly. And yet, because of our sin, we're often there. We're, We're often guilty of this, right? We Which one of us can say, I've never, ever been greedy. I've only been perfectly generous. Well, one of us can say that, us being Jesus. (laughs) He can say that, which is incredible. That brings us to our third theme, which is the sacrifice of cheerful giving. The sacrifice of cheerful giving is this, that in a world tainted by sin now, we live in a world where sin has its effect, cheerful giving involves sacrifice The perfect world that God has created has been corrupted by sin. And so now, because of that, greed exists and grumbling exists, and these have put us at odds with God. But God not only invented generosity, he also redeems us. Redeems it, rather. Redeems generosity. He didn't leave us alone. God did not leave us alone in our greed and our grumbling. Instead, he made the biggest, most sacrificial act of generosity that will ever occur in all of eternity and will be heralded for ages and ages and ages to come. And that is he generously gave himself. That's God's act of generosity. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus Christ, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, divine from eternity past and into eternity future, became impoverished so that we can become rich. How did he do that? What did that look like? Well, he humbled himself. He came down from his royal, heavenly throne. He was born instead into an animal feeding trough. He who was robed in majesty and glory and power and might subjected himself instead to blood and sweat and tears and dirt and flies and disease and the stench of a stable occupied by livestock." He was born into a family of little means, one who in their poverty couldn't afford to even offer a lamb when presenting their firstborn son, Jesus, in the temple. And so instead they gave two pigeons, as the little law allowed for those who were poor. Jesus did not live the life of a king but of a servant, working hard under his his stepdad as a carpenter, working with his hands, sovereign lord of the universe, cutting wood to make a living. He didn't ride into Jerusalem on a steed, robed in royal colors, but on a humble donkey and a couple of dirty coats. He wasn't lifted up as an exalted leader, a renowned prophet, or an honored ruler, but he was lifted on a piece of wood designed by the Romans to be the most humiliating and dehumanizing form of public execution. He endured his father's scowl as he hung naked, and bloody and dirty on a wooden beam, marred most of all by the sins of greedy humans who dishonor their maker. He became poor. In his poverty, we become rich. Brings us to our final theme, which is the reward of cheerful giving. The word for cheerful giving is this. God will generously bless those who in Christ are generous. Note that I said, in Christ, are generous. That's important. Friends, if you are not in Christ, if you're not banking on his poverty making you rich, then it ultimately doesn't matter how generous you are on this earth. No amount of generosity makes us right with God. We can't make up the debt we have incurred against him. As sinners, we failed to keep God's standards, and the wages for that is eternal death experienced in hell. And the only hope for being generously blessed by God for all of eternity is to place our trust in Jesus alone, to agree with God that we are bad, that Jesus is good, and that relying on Christ's life and sacrifice alone is the basis for our standing before God. And so if you're not in Christ, your biggest issue today is not whether or not you're generous. Your biggest issue is not trusting in the one whose record of sacrificial generosity can make you right with God. If you're not trusting Jesus, the one thing I ask for you to take away from this sermon is to realize that you're at odds with a generous God. And that this generous gift of his son, Jesus, is the only way to be reconciled with him and to access the eternal riches that await those who trust in him. He is so generous. He is generous enough to give his own son to die for you and for all of your greed and all of your other sins to make you right with him. That is the sort of God that we serve. And so if you aren't serving him, let's say, think about it hard. Um, Think about what Christ did and your need to be reconciled to a perfect God. For those who are in Christ, there awaits generous rewards. We're supposed to be motivated by that. (laughs) We're supposed to be motivated by reward. Like the person who works for a paycheck, most people, well, it depends. Yeah, probably most people wouldn't do their jobs if they weren't being paid for it, right? Okay, I like what I do, but I I need to make a living and I'm working for the paycheck that's coming, right? Right. That's fine. That's a good motivation. You're supposed to have that. There's something equivalent here. God wants us to be motivated by the rewards that He promises us. Otherwise, He wouldn't give these promises to us uh, for generosity. We found this theme. We find this theme rather in, in 2 Corinthians chapter nine, verse six. We're going to revisit that verse. It says, "The point is this." We looked at half this verse. We'll look at the other half. Whoever sows sparingly will rea- also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Guys, that's good news. Just as those who sow sparingly and reap sparingly, those who sow bountifully are going to reap bountifully, which means that God sees and commends and will reward generosity. The scriptures are filled with verses. I mean, there's time does not allow us. There is. I was surprised. There is a lot that the scriptures have to say about even financial generosity, not just generosity in large bucket, but financial generosity. And so this is just like the slightest little sliver of, of little, it's like a, I don't know what they call it? like a little taste test, <laughs> okay, of different parts of scripture that talk about God's heart. They reveal God's heart to bless his people as they trust him uh, through financial generosity. Listen to these verses. I'll, I'll pick out three. One is Proverbs 19, 21. I like this one. It says this, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Guys, giving to the poor is lending to God himself. I don't often think of it that way. You're not going to find a more sure investment than that. Who, who, who would you like to most lend your money to? Someone who is dependent, or you, someone you could depend on, to make good on your loan, right? If you're going to give it to them, you don't want them to default. Guess what? God will never default on any loan he's given. And he owns you know, the universe, uh, so he can repay you. That's what giving to the poor is. Lending to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Malachi 3.10, this is God speaking to Israel. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. That's an interesting invitation. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, the, the God of angel armies, the one who rules the universe, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God's saying, you want to you see how generous I can be? Trust me with what you have. Give the tithe, be generous, and watch me outdo you. Watch me make it so that you don't have any need. He's, he's, he's testing his people there. That's quite an invitation. Luke 6, 38, Jesus says this. He says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. When I, th- when I read this verse, I think of, I, I, I think always of, of brown sugar. Um, good measure, right? Press down, <laughs> packing into that. Shaking together, running over. That's the way that God gives back to the people who are generous. He says, you give, but this measure, great. You know what? I'm going to cram that thing full and dump it back in your lap. That's what Jesus says to us. That's the new covenant, right? Now, we don't believe in or preach a prosperity gospel. That's a teaching that says that you're going to be financially wealthy if you give to God's church. That is one possible outcome. God could do that. He could make you financially wealthy as you seek to be generous toward Him. That's fine. But Scripture doesn't guarantee that. That's not the only narrative that we find. Many times, sacrificial giving looks just like that. Sacrifice. Consider the poor widow in Mark 12, who gave two small copper coins to the temple. Which Jesus reveals to us—that's all that she had. She arrives at the temple dirt poor. She's a widow, so she doesn't have, especially in that time, a husband who can you know, work in the marketplace and help her provide for needs. And she's poor; it's so like real, super poor. She's got two copper coins. She arrives dirt poor. She leaves financially broke, with nothing to her name. And we have we have nothing in Scripture that would make us expect that she then became really wealthy, right? Uh, but while she remained financially poor, she did receive a great blessing. She got Jesus' attention. Even in her extreme poverty, she wanted to worship God through sacrificial and cheerful generosity. And Jesus takes note. He sees him. He's unimpressed with the rich people dumping in big buckets of money. He, he cares about the heart. He points her out to his disciples. And those, la- those disciples later remember, oh, yeah, there's that woman. And they wrote it down in scripture, added to the canon of God's word. And now her act of generosity has been praised and heralded by Christians across the entire globe for thousands of years. What a reward. And beyond that, God himself rejoices over her with loud singing for all eternity because she said, you're my daughter and you had practically nothing and you trusted me with it. And that heart right there is the one I want to bless and praise. Friends, there is reward for our generosity. It might be in this life, it might not. But God has made a promise and he's going to make good on it. Being financially generous is not throwing money in a wishing well. It's putting it in an account held by God whose returns dwarf the most lucrative investment. Think about the Bitcoin stories, right? That someone struck gold, that threw a couple bucks into some random account, and then it multiplies by a thousand. You go, whoa, right? You think, or think about like a savings account. You think five percent savings interest is pretty good? I, I do. I think that's pretty good. How about ten percent? Ten percent would be great. That's like a, that's a high end investment. How about twenty percent? You think twenty percent is great, man? Who who wouldn't put? money into an account that would return 20% return on investment. I mean, that is, you're a fool if you're not doing that. (laughs) Jesus promises this number. He says, for those who follow him and give up house and land and relative, for his sake, he says, they will return to them a hundredfold. Percentage-wise, that is 10,000%. Of all that we leave when we follow Jesus, he is going to return to us. What a return on investment. Do we trust him? Do we believe that he's going to do that? Do we think he's just making things up and he's not going to be good on it? God says, test me, try me, see? Watch me be good. Watch me be more generous than you could ever be. Friends, we have a generous God, and he made us to be generous people. And even though we fail, because we do, we do, we fail all the time, he sacrificially gave himself to us on a cross so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. The only way we can give sacrificially is because we know he has given sacrificially to us. Not just as an example, but we are the beneficiaries of his sacrificial generosity. And now God seeks to reward us, even our smallest act of faith mixed with sin, he still says, I see myself in you and I want to reward that. And so he rewards us in abundant ways for every act of generosity that we do in the name of Jesus. So how do we apply this? What practically does it look like to be a cheerful giver whom God loves? Well, I'm going I'm to answer that by addressing three questions. Who do we give to? How much should we give? And how should we give? Okay, very practical. Heading into the new year, thinking about this category. I, I, I would challenge and commend you to think about this category of financial generosity, looking at the new year and your budgets ahead, especially as you might, well, hopefully you get a raise, you know, I don't know. But like, think about that. What, what should you be you doing with, with more of the money that God's giving you? So first, who do we give to? Well, biblically, we give to our local pastors. 1 Timothy 5 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Pastor Mark, who labors, I would say, especially well in preaching and in teaching, appropriately gets paid by the church. He ought to. You shall not muzzle the ox as he treads out the grain. He gets paid enough It's my personal desire that the Lord produces in our church the sort of generosity, the kind of joyful, cheerful giving that would enable us to pay Mark well. He didn't tell me to say that. (laughs) That's why I'm giving this sermon. This is a fun, non-conflict of interest sermon. I want to pay Mark well out of the generosity that comes out of this church. And there is generosity in this church. The fact that we are in a building right now proves that you guys have been gripped by the gospel of christ your wallets have been gripped by the gospel of christ which is a picture of your heart and therefore needs are being met and god is being honored but may we excel in this act of grace also as paul commands, commands the commands corinthians so i want to i would love if we could pay mark well so that's one priority giving to local pastors there's other priorities one is we we give to our fellow believers often in the context of the local church in Acts 2, okay, it's the first picture of the inception of the church, right? The, the, the Spirit comes down, uh, gives gifts, and the gospel is proclaimed. People repent, believe. They gather together. They're worshiping. They're fellowshipping. And now, what do they do? The new Christians, it says, were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they met for meals and for worship. So, that early church said, you know what, a priority, they, they were gripped. The gospel affects me so much so, I get it intellectually, but it grips me to go, I need to be caring for my fellow brother, my fellow sister, who, who are around me. They're now my family. God has made us brothers and sisters in Christ. That means brother and sister, right? We are brothers and sisters of Jesus and therefore of one another. So giving to, your, giving to a local church means you're meeting real needs, your financial gifts pay for rent and for insurance and payroll and ministry expenses and, and travel for conferences. It's a ways of meeting the needs that we have. All of the different ministry expenses, like our, our children's ministry, like all the toys that we have, somebody bought those. Uh, the, the drum kit, someone bought that. All right, All the things that we're doing to care for one another, that's meeting needs. And our deacons, I'm really grateful for our deacons. Um, under Danny's leadership, have done a very, very good job of, of stewarding these funds well. Um, and and to uh, trim the fat, so to speak, wherever possible. So your funds are being used well. They're not being thrown away on things that we don't need to be spending money on. Um, But if we want to do more ministry in this church, if we want to have a greater impact here in Aurora for the sake of Jesus Christ and for his gospel, it's going to require that we give more. That's just how it works. That's the method that God uses to fund his church and the growth of the gospel is in part through people's financial generosity. So we give to the local church and to, to, to one another. We also give to the poor. This is an important category. Deuteronomy 15 envisions a community okay, that's saved by God and that operates in cheerful generosity. It says this in Deuteronomy 15. It says, if, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And and one application of that would be our our church's benevolence fund, for instance. We highlight once a quarter. People often are giving to that. What is that used for? Meeting real financial needs of the poor within our church, those who have financial need that say, hey, I could use a hand. But giving to the poor could look like lots of things. It doesn't have to look like that. It could look like bringing someone a meal or, or giving to a nonprofit that helps those who are disadvantaged. Guys, this stuff is worship to God. It's commanded of us, and he will reward us for it. Finally, the fourth category of people we give to is extra-local opportunities. Uh, the setting of our passage here in 2 Corinthians is extra-local partnership. Paul is Paul is uh, commending, uh, commanding, or well, yeah, exhorting uh, the Corinthian churches to be concerned about cr- Christians that they don't even know <laughs> over in Jerusalem. Well, the Macedonians and the Corinthians were financially supporting their brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem, right? Three different geographical locations in the Middle East. Or, well, yeah, whatever, near East. Today, that could look like giving to Rancho 3 So anybody who gave to Rancho 3 you're doing that. They are partners with us in the gospel down in Mexico. They are teaching and raising these young ones who don't have a mom or a dad uh, to know and to love Jesus Christ. That is amazing. Those are gospel partners. Um, It could look like supporting the Englands who are doing the same thing that we're doing here in in Thailand, Isan Thailand, where they are making disciples there, seeking to make the gospel of Christ known. And so if you're giving to them, you're enabling them to uh, further their ministry there. In fact, all the funds that you give, of all the funds you give to this church, 5% of all that you guys give goes immediately to our West region, and and 5% goes immediately to Sovereign Grace National. Why? Because we're partners with these fellow saints that we seek to herald Christ together. So there's, there's this extra local partnership that God has in mind for his people. So you've seen a few different categories, lots of different categories that the Lord would have us give to. Okay, we know who to give to. Now, here's the, here's the tough question. <laughs> How much are we supposed to give? That is a very practical question. Okay, there's usually a lot of debate about the tithe, right? Okay, tithe means what? A tenth. It's simply a tenth of someone's income given to the Lord. It's a tenth of everything. It's the tenth of the first fruits. It's the beginning of everything. In the Old Testament, we see the tithe. It's clearly prescribed by God to Israel, I believe for landowners in particular. And sometimes that went from 10%. For some, I think it went up to, some people have done some math, up to like 22% of everything they were given, which is like, that's a lot. Okay, the tithe, though, was only a portion of what God's people were to give in the Old Testament as they worshiped and trusted God. Many other offerings existed in the Old Testament, like like free will offerings and otherwise, where uh, you're giving something above and beyond, right? There's, there's this joyful awareness of God has done so much for me. I'm not just going to hit the minimum mark. I'm going to go above and beyond because God is good. And so it means that many uh, Israelites were often given much more than 10% of their gross income to God. Okay, so that's the Old Testament, right? Does that still apply to us today? Well, nowhere in the New Testament will you find the command to give a tithe. You won't. You won't find it abolished either. Okay. <laughs> so it's an argument from silence if you want to take that route. What we do find in the New Testament, actually, I'm going to see if I can remember a quote. It's I don't have it written down, but it's something basically. Mark Prater, who's our um, he leads Sovereign Grace. He's a, a director of Sovereign Grace Churches. He and a few others uh, wrote a small booklet by Sovereign Grace called uh, Joyful Generosity, and um, I brought a number of themes from that. And if you want to read it, you can check it out. It's just a few bucks on Amazon. Um, and one thing he said, he's like, the New, Testament, New, the New Testament apparently really isn't interested in answering the question, are we supposed to tithe? Because right? it doesn't answer. It it doesn't seem interested in that. He says, what does answer, however, is, how can I thrive in sacrificial and generous giving as I seek to worship God? We do find in the New Testament that admonishment, to give generously, sacrificially. It doesn't say tithe, but it does say generous. So time and again, we've got believers giving sacrificially, and they are praised by God. The two examples we looked at today were the poor widow with two coins. That's a lot more than 10%. <laughs> the Macedonian believers, their extreme poverty, because of their abundance of joy, led them to a wealth of generosity on their part that is what god shows as an example of hey you want to see what it looks like to be gripped by the gospel to understand that all of your sins have been paid for and that he who was rich became poor that you might become rich that's the example god gives so a question to ask rather than looking around the number of tithe would be well first are you giving anything that's a legitimate question and if you're in a category you if you're honest and you say i'm not or i'm not doing it regularly Okay, consider that. Consider what generosity looks like if you're not giving anything that that by definition can't be generous. Not financially, right? If you are giving, is it generous? Is it sacrificial? Is that how someone else would describe it if they knew your habit? Sacrificial giving often involves its sacrifice, right? I mentioned that earlier. If, if what you give, if you say, well, am I giving sacrificially? Well, ask this. If what you give doesn't hurt at least a little, <laughs> it probably isn't sacrificial, right? If it doesn't just, like, have this sting. and now that sting, it could be that you've just got to a place of such joy that you're like, I don't even care, Lord, it's yours. All right, you're not the person I'm, I'm talking to then. <laughs> the Lord has gripped your heart. You're like, this is just pure joy. Well, good for you. I want to reach there. <laughs> but even so, it's okay if it's sacrificial. It, it can hurt a little, it doesn't mean that we only give because we're happy about it, but we are motivated by that. We're motivated by God's generosity. So if if what you give doesn't hurt a little bit, it it probably isn't sacrificial. If you're not giving it all, as I mentioned, it's not giving sacrificially. And guys, we all have something to give. This Here's what's interesting. The Bible does not preclude the poor from this command, nor does it preclude the poor from this reward and promise. Because God isn't, he doesn't, ultimately care about the number of dollars that come into a, a, a box. Right? That's, not what, that's not what interested Jesus when he sat at the temple. Very interesting. He sat down and watched people give. It's like, that's kind of an awkward thing to do. Who sits down and watches? How much are you giving? How much are you giving? But what does he see? He sees their heart. He's not impressed necessarily by the, the loads of other people. He says, here's this poor woman she does not exempt herself from the command to be generous or to trust God with what she has and also does not exempt herself from the amazing blessing of a God who notices and commends her generosity and her faith. We all have something to give, and therefore we all have the opportunity to reflect our Creator through being generous. Those who sow nothing reap nothing. Those who sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Of those who sow bountifully, reap bountifully. Which of these characterizes your giving? If you're convicted, then praise God that the Spirit's at work. That's fine. He's <laughs> supposed to do that. But don't get bogged down, however. Don't confuse this with condemnation, okay? Your standing before God, if you are in Christ, your standing before God is independent of your obedience. It is dependent entirely upon the act the generous act of salvation that Christ accomplished for you on the cross. That does not change, period. Okay, His favor does not wax and wane based on our obedience. That is never true. Okay, Instead, we just say, Lord, I'm convicted. You're right. I'm wrong. I'm going to repent of my sin. I'm going to continue to trust Christ's perfect generosity, and I'm going just going to take the next incremental step of obedience as I seek to worship God. And God's going to reward that. Okay? so we have our final question. How should we give? We looked at who we give to. We looked at how much should we give, the answer being generous, sacrificial. Brings us to our final question. How should we give? In what way does God want us to give? Well, ultimately, God is not merely after our wallets. He's after our hearts. I've mentioned that before. But note, how we use our wallets reveals our hearts, (laughs) right? Does it not? We spend money on the things that we prioritize, God's desire is to produce cheerful giving in us that expresses faith and dependence on God. So how should we give? Well, first, we give with the right attitude. This is just as important as giving. It's not like God's just like, well, I want you to give, period. No, God loves not just a giver. He loves a cheerful giver. Cheer should color the way we give. We give willingly, not under compulsion, not not crushed by some sense of guilt. We give willingly, realizing, God, you've given everything to me. I can give to you. We give thankfully. We recognize that all we have comes from God. We give cheerfully, gladly, entrusting ourselves to a generous God who supplies all of our needs and promises rewards for all that we do that honors him. Remember, generosity is worship of God, friends. Let's treat it as such. As a quick note, if you're giving right now, and maybe you're giving generously, realize maybe the, what the Lord has for you is not that He wants you to give more, per se. He might just want you to enjoy it more. <laughs> give cheerfully. Do the same thing and realize, God, this is worship. Like, you're, you're allowing me to write this check or send the thing online or drop money, whatever it is. And, and that's worship, and you're honored by that. And that's you at work in me, and your spirits at work in me. And I love your son, and therefore do this. That's cool. Take enjoyment in it. Be a cheerful giver. Not just a giver, a cheerful giver. Secondly, apart from giving with the right attitude, we give in a disciplined way. There's a pattern, a habit. It's, it's a rhythm of the Christian life, just like prayer or reading your Bible or gathering with people or singing worship to God. It's giving. 1 Corinthians 16 gets, gets at this principle. Paul says, "...now concerning the collection for the saints..." As I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. So on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul doesn't want to come and have, be like, okay, guys, now time's to give. It's like, no, set, get into a discipline, first day of every week. we might have been paid weekly then. All right, let's just set aside right now. Here's my paycheck, let's set it aside set aside, whatever that looks like. Maybe you get paid bi-monthly. Okay, set aside, set aside. There's a habit to this. Biblical generosity is planned and systematic. It's, it's not subject to the whims of whether or not we're particularly feeling generous that day, right? It's, it's okay if it's not always feeling like, oh, I just, I really want to do this. <laughs> it doesn't have to be. It worships God when we say, I know it's right, I'm going to do it, and I'm working toward the cheer. I'm working toward the joy. Good, that's perfect. We are, we're not going to arrive this side of heaven at that place. But we work toward it. So we give systematically in a planned way. Friends, the Lord intends generosity to be a source. It's a blessing. It's a, sor- it's a source of blessing to us. Do you believe that? Do you believe God's command to you to be generous with your finances is a means that he intends to bless you? I had to wrestle with that. I just see it as like, yeah, I'm supposed to do it. I just obey. I know it's good. He goes, more than that, no, I, I want to bless you. I want to make your life better and more joyful and cheerful. That's why I've given you this command, because it causes your heart to say, okay, fine. Okay, I have what you've given me, and it's from you, and I, and I don't need it all. I can trust you, God. That faith is freeing. That faith is joy-producing. It's how God wants to bless us. That's one means by which he wants to bless us. We serve a generous God who generously gave us Christ, and we have the privilege to be generous toward God and toward others as we trust God to be generous toward us in return. And so as we look toward this new year, let's see what God has, what God has in store for us. Test me, see if I won't bless you. <laughs> Well, let's test God this next year. I know it's a scary phrase to say, but he invites us in this category to do so. Let's test God to see how generous he is going to be as he produces joy and life and, and an eternity of wealth and riches. As we seek to be cheerful givers because of Jesus Christ. It has to start there. It has to remain there. We have to keep going back to Jesus became poor so that by his poverty, we might become rich. So let's make that a priority as we seek to grow in obedience in that this next year. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for being a generous God. We thank you that you did not hoard all that you have, that you did not keep it to yourself, God, but rather created us and provided for us and even gave us your own son. That is incredible, Lord. We will never wrap our heads fully around that either in this life, or I think even in life to come, there will always be the depths of the riches and the glory and the majesty of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would deepen our love for you. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for our greed. Lord, forgive me. Uh, forgive me for my lack of trust in you. Forgive me for failing to see this uh, command of financial generosity as worship to you. Lord, I pray that you increase in our hearts the love for Jesus Christ, the love for his gospel, the love for your people, a love for those who don't know you yet, who, who have yet to experience the gospel of Christ. Lord, I pray that you make this church a church filled with cheerful givers. Lord, I pray that you would increase our joy and glorify Jesus more and more. It's his name that we ask all these things. Amen.